Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. This latest podcast is special to me because it harkens back to 2000 when I wrote a paper in law school about the use of securitizations to disrupt the music industry. I mused about the disruption of the industry and the demise of the traditional ways of doing business, and I wasn't far off. The music industry has undergone enormous changes with the advent of streaming, and the demand for content has never been higher with the new ways to monetize content. Add to that the fascination of NFTs and the new attention into the divisibility of artists' rights. Finally, with rock-bottom interest rates and an insatiable hunger for non-correlated returns, music rights have become a popular asset class for investors. To help think about this, I went to the source, David Pullman. David is a pioneer in music industry finance. His firm, The Pullman Group, covers many aspects of the music industry, including publishing, mechanical rights, royalty management, loans, advances, and securitizations. He revolutionized the financial world when he coordinated with the legal, creative, and financial expertise and David Bowie himself to create the Bowie Bond. We get into his background, what went into the Bowie transaction, and some of the issues with future music financings, and his thoughts on the impact of NFTs. Without further ado, David Pullman. Welcome aboard, David. Happy to be here. Well, this is a real treat for me. As we've talked about ahead of time, I wrote a paper in law school talking about Bowie bonds and the divisibility of IP rights and sort of the intersection between the music industry and finance. And you are a giant in the space, given what you did in putting together the concept of the Bowie bond. Maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be an expert in this and what led to your inclusion in this project with David Bowie? First of all, thank you for the kind words and I'm impressed that you were the first writing a paper on it. So you're way ahead of your time. <laughs> so we get to speak to people that are way ahead of their time. Actually, what's unique about this interview with you will be that we have this uniqueness here. We're going to have the beginning, the middle, and the end. So the beginning, how it came to be, what happened when I first done this deal for David Bowie and then when you wrote on it, what's happening in between and where we are now. I'm going to be going back and forth a lot, which when I did the deal, when you wrote the paper, we didn't know what would happen. Ah, perfect. I find myself in the same position I was when I first saw the deal for David Bowie. I'm sitting on the couch talking to someone, just like we're having a conversation, just two people. And my background, everything I did in my career was new in area. I first started on Wall Street. I did interview for trading. I was a mortgage-backed securities trader which was brand new at the time, CMOs didn't exist. Credit card securitizations didn't exist. Auto loan securitizations didn't exist. All there was in the beginning was Ginny Mae, Freddie Mac, and Fannie Mae. And then whole loan trading started. So I went from that, which is unusual, from trading, mortgage-backed securities, which is a new asset class at the time, which became the largest asset class after U.S. Treasuries, and then went into investment banking, which is an unusual path. Not many people have done both, one or the other. And then I thought during those years, as I was spending more time on the investment banking side coming from the trading side, was what would be the largest asset class? What would be something new? Because I was always trading new asset classes. And I enjoyed that. I didn't trade the commodity ones. How when I started at the beginning, when I started trading, the new asset class, because it didn't exist in terms of it was the smallest portion of the market 
was the 15-year mortgage. Oh, wow. Which is now the largest part of the market. So it just shows you how it evolved from 30-year mortgage, which is traditional, to 15-year. And how it's accepted. That's really the standard in terms of the 15-year. So what was unique here was I wanted a new asset class, and I wanted to be in something new. It's a good combination. So I thought, what would be new? Intellectual property is the largest asset class. And I liked music, TV, film, entertainment, assets, and intellectual property. And that's when I segued into that. And at the time I was doing new asset classes in investment banking, an opportunity came along because at the time, David Bowie, he was in his 40s. So he was thinking so far ahead. He was in his late 40s. We did the deal. We closed the deal on his 50th birthday. And he was looking to sell his catalog and then decided these were his babies because everything was reverting to him. So his unique situation was he owned his record masters. What does that mean? Most 99.9999% of artists create a record. The record company owns it. In his situation, David Bowie and his business manager was very bright person. Also, David was only person I ever used the term to describe was savvy. It was great to have his first client ever because he never second guessed. In fact, when he was looking, he was thinking about selling, but these songs were his babies, so he did not want to sell. And it wasn't even him thinking about selling. It was his business manager at the time for him. And then said, well, what can we do? Because David decided he did not want to sell, even though he's getting these large offers, which we're going to come back later in this interview, that he got, which are reality now. They were reality then, but I don't think people have the idea. So he got very high offers for at the time, and David decided he did not want to sell. These songs were his babies. So at that time, I asked questions about how much did it earn a year, and the answers were such that like as much as a large company next was did he have three years or five years and the answer is yes three years and five years of audited financials on the earnings the next question was was at the time just so the age was it originally started as big eight accounting firms then big six and then big four so for guests of all different age groups was it by a major accounting firm it was and to which I said, I could securitize that. Let me ask you a quick question here. So he had the ownership of the mechanicals, meaning let's call it the manifestations of the recording. Did he also own the songwriting? How did that relate to what he was securitizing? Use the mechanical word actually correct, but I'll backtrack. Masters, the physical side of it, which is half of the business. Picture a pie, a circle. Half of it is the recording side and half is the publishing side. In general, half of it's a record side. David owned his record master. So I went off. David comes to a record company. He's 15 years old, 16, whatever age. He's a teenager. And he says, I want to own my master. So they say, no. He fights so hard. And his manager, so David was savvy. Most people have a manager like could be their a relative, their mother, their father, their brother, their sister, their aunt, their uncle, their friend, their girlfriend, their boyfriend. David's manager was a barrister. This is a very, very astute person. So they negotiated to get his a barrister, meaning for Americans, an attorney. <laughs> so David negotiated to get his record masters back. He fought so hard for them and his manager. The idea was, this kid's going to be nothing in five years anyway, so just give him back to him. Ah. So the idea was it turned out to be a very, very true thing. Most artists think they're going to fail, not succeed, like David thought he'd succeed. So he wanted his masters back. He also had his publishing, the other half. He wrote his songs. That would be the writer's share. So the publishing half of the pie, half of it is publisher share and half of it is writer's share. And people don't understand, how does David Bowie make so much of the time? How does he make so much? 
And we're going to go later in this interview to current people that are looking to sell their catalog to do deals, what we talked to over the years. What happened was if you're a solo artist, you're not sharing with anyone. So if you're four in a group or five in a group, it's five-way split on record royalties. Or if you're on the record masters, or if you're a writer and 10 people write a song today, 20 people are on a song. If you're David Bowie, you write a song by yourself, it's 100% to you. So that's the reason why his earnings were high, because he didn't have splits with others on the record master or on the publishing side of the writer share side. He retained ownership. He would get concepts, which I actually identify with, because people said the same about me. He, will, he would grasp concepts very quickly and then take him within under his belt and use them going forward. So what I mean by that was most people ask someone about doing a deal, which I said I could securitize that. Business manager was, what's securitization? Which was kind of interesting. He did not know. But what was David's response about this new idea that no one had ever done before? It had not even been written about. Now, you wrote a paper on it, but no one had even written about the idea of possibly doing it. I just did it. And that was, was great about David because he didn't second guess it. Not only did he never said yes, he said, why haven't we started yet? <laughs> That's a great so client when he to have. Heard it, <laughs> Yeah, he took it in within a split second, and instead of saying, yes, I'll think about asking questions, he said, why haven't we started yet? Which was great. And then we did it in warp speed, which was two months. Was, these deals should have taken years. Most of these first deals are usually done as equity, high yield, junk bonds, whatever you want to call it at the time, but they're not done as investment grade. And the first deal was $55 million. It was rated investment grade by multiple nationally recognized rating agencies, which included Moody's, Fitch, and Duff and Phelps later. And were sold to institutional investors. It did not include any of David's current work or any of his future work. He only included his first 25 gold albums. Why were they gold albums? One of your viewers went, why? Because platinum didn't exist yet in the 60s until 1976 is when platinum comes in. So pretty much Let's Dance was the last album that was included in terms of hits that came later, which came in the early 80s. So it was mainly 60s hits and 70s, and that was Hispanic covered. So it was 300 copyrights. And what was interesting about it at the time, looking at it, which is kind of segueing and we'll jump to after we did the first deal for David Bowie, you're not going to have other people that own record masters, you're not going to have other people that own their publishing and the writer's share, and their solo artists, it's one off. They said that we wouldn't be able to do it again. And then we found another deal. The second deal was for songwriters, I was looking, what would we do next? And thinking like having done the deal for David Bowie was a landmark transaction. We copyrighted. We trademarked Bowie Bonds and Pullman Bonds because we knew it was a series. Future artists would want it to be called something else. Next, we're at, after we did the deal for David, look at what we do next. And it was at a cafe that was around the corner called the Motown Cafe yeah. from my office, one block away. Walked in there and sitting in there, all looking up, there's this giant 33 LP in the restaurant of the Dome, giant size. Looked up and it said, Stop in the name of love, Holland Ocean Holland, produced by Holland Ocean Holland. And I looked around and I saw all these songs on the wall, like an automat, the old restaurant kinds of restaurants. And it was a, basically, it was a pool of all different artists, not one artist, but the same songwriters on one third of those hits, Motown, one third of Motown hits were Holland George Holland. So that was our second deal. And a year later, I was sitting with Holland George Holland, brought them back together as a group. And we had closed a deal with the Grammys trustees awards together. And then I thought, when I was with them, what would we do next? Because at this point, when we first did our first deals, everyone thought the idea was it was at the cover of the Wall Street Journal, and people, they couldn't believe it. Six months later, it was everyone else's idea. So now we have people trying to imitate us and copy us of leaving. 
And I said, what's going to be our next deal? So our next deal, I look up as I'm leaving the Motown Cafe after being with Holland Dozier Holland that I'd just done a deal with. And we walk out. So it's the next Pullman bond. We move to walk out. Say so now we have another issue. So I look up on the way out. This, the second biggest LP in the Motown Cafe is Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing by Ashford and Simpson. So look up. So that's great. It's perfect to say Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing because no one's able to copy what we're doing, even though everyone's saying they were involved in it. I met mean, the most people ever after having done this deal in my career that all had said that some involvement, which I never met any of these people, but I thought it was a nice compliment that I would always hear that. So that was a third deal that we did. Actually, the first deal was for David Bowie. Then the second, third, and fourth were for Holland, Dozier, and Hongs. They were all they were on the same songs, but they were all individually owned. They were a songwriter share. No one asked any questions on that deal because they realized how these songs were standards, these Motown hits. And then after that, Ashton Simpson were two deals. They were a couple, but they were two separate catalogs that they had together, the songs they wrote together. And then from there, we're looking at the next deal. And it was interesting in terms of learning different personalities. James Brown was someone else who was a great to work with. And then we did a deal for James Brown, the Godfather Soul. And James Brown would always say things, everything people say. They didn't understand us. I understand him perfectly. Like about ownership, he owns his rights, his publishing, and his writer's share. And everything he needed to say was in the first 10 seconds. After that, was extra. We did interviews with James Brown. It was a whole series, 20 interviews from a, we were at the studio and all these different TV stations were doing interviews for us on air. And I thought, what are we going to do? Like, what is he going to say? Like, he's going to get bored. Unbelievable. It's the hardest work you've managed of his. Every single interview he was on for, it was different for, instead of repeating the same answers, I was like, I'm having a hard time keeping up after the second one. And he's just kept going. He was fantastic. And then after that, his biggest hit was, I feel good. Why did it make sense? Because one of our investors in the deal, we'd buy the bonds of the Pullman Group and then buy Pullman bonds and then we'd sell them after. We'd make the investment banking fee and the arbitrage on the bonds over the life of them. So one of the investors of the insurance companies, one of them that bought bonds, talked about their child singing, I feel good, on their own. It's four years old. So the idea was really the longevity and the perpetuity of these songs in terms of the awareness of audiences. And that's what was very important. And the next deal was for the IC Brothers that had the longest streaking group in history. They had 66 Billboard hits, starting with Shout in 1959. And the unique part was these songs, which the audience might be interested, Shout by the IC Brothers. I Feel Good by James Brown. Let me interrupt one quick second here. Sure. So all of these different acts, you got, in a sense, lucky with David Bowie having a very, let's call it simple ownership structure. It's one person who owned everything. First of all, with David Bowie, besides he owned his masters, what was the rationale behind taking an upfront payment for future royalties, let's say? Why was he interested in doing that? You said, and it's very flattering at the beginning of our interview, but you're in a unique position with this interview because you have the benefit of history and a very, very current interview. So what do I mean by that? I couldn't answer your question the way I'm going to answer it now before other things have occurred. So the first is David wanted to own everything. His manager, that they didn't get along later, which I'm, as a, my personality is like, they don't get along means the person's very good. So David didn't get along with Tony DeFries, his manager at that time. But I respected the fact that they were two very bright people that were loggerheads. So David was upset that his manager had any percentage of ownership of his masters. And he did. 16%. So David used the percentage of money of the proceeds of the $55 million to buy out his former manager. And now we can say today, 
Well, there's no question that it was an amazing deal for David Bowie's landmark transaction. I'm going to add why. The other part was David was very savvy. David lived out of the country, meaning not the U.S., the U.K. at the time, when it was perfectly legal to do that, which had always been illegal to live out of the country, but if you did a year out of the country, which he did, out of the U.K., it was a tax-free transaction. Oh, wow. And David was a resident, historically, outside of the country. And it was done all perfectly, and it's over 20 years ago. So that was a benefit. And on top of that, if it was a unique situation, it would have been taxed for years well because these deals, we did the Pullman bonds, and the first one for David Bowie, the Bowie bond, securitizations, were non-taxable events at the time because they were financing. David could choose to treat it as a sale, as a true sale, choose to, and he has the right to do it, and he passed the ownership. But he did not have to. So he had it both ways. Either as the financing was tax-free, also from in tax structure, doing year out, he was able to do that. So that was brilliant. And now we could say later, after the bonds had paid off, they never missed a payment, they never defaulted, they never triggered. And the value of the catalog is greater today than when we did the deal in 1997. I'm not saying what the numbers are, but I can tell you that it's in terms of it's been in the articles in the very last week in the news of ported offers for David's catalog. I mean, just give you an idea, when we did the deal for David Bowie, it was a $55 million deal. Immediately after entering into the deal, we introduced a 15-year record license with EMI with minimum payments of $30 million. Minimum payments, oh, wow. not maximum, minimum per year. So then it was a great deal, and now you can see that all these years later, it's worth even more based on what the offers are for the catalog. Well, the other crazy thing about it, as I understand it, is that once the bond matured, so he was able to raise money, the royalty streams paid off the interest and then paid down the principal. At the end of the 10 years of the bond, everything reverted back to Bowie as well. So he, in a sense, got to have his cake and eat it too. Exactly. Well, it's kind of even better than that. It's like he got the money, his heirs got the debt, they paid it off. Looking back on it, this deal involves so many different areas for him, per se, He's an individual. So it's not a company. It's an individual. So we had issues like family law, bankruptcy law, corporate law, copyright law, all anticipatory issues, the state taxes, taxes, taxes in different countries, royalty treaties between countries. All these issues had to be addressed in the very first deal ever, any intellectual property securitized ever. So what was unique was then you could see the brilliance of the estate planning. Because David puts the asset in, he's 49 years old. He closed the deal on his 50th birthday. So he's way ahead of his time. So it's not like, well, he did something right before his death that he was coming. He had done his planning, estate planning, decades before. I point that out. There's sort of like George Steinbrenner dying in the right year and the Yankees pass off to the family. David Bowie's is one of the best examples of estate planning I've ever seen, where he was able to monetize his asset and then get it to the next generation, essentially incident-free. To that end, you talked about all the different fingers of legal aspects and so on that sort of gripped around this transaction. What was it like just wrangling everybody and coordinating all this? In a sense, who was the quarterback? Me. <laughs> so I had a lot of different people working for me, putting it together. And what was unique about that was, from my perspective, and I guess it was a good fit. David was very supportive, one. Two, no one had ever done it before. So I had to ask myself, well, I'm going to be able to do this, like, as I'm going through it. And it's the process, like, what if I can't do it? Because no one's ever done it before. So and then I had all these different people that worked for me on a team to put this together. I had to orchestrate it. 
for me, it was I felt comfortable with new ideas. What I liked about it, which is coming up to later part of the interview about new asset classes, NFTs, is what I pictured was walking to an art museum. In this case, I imagine I run track and my track coach would say he'd like to, when you need to contemplate things, go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and walk around Fifth Avenue, walk around the galleries. And David, one, was an artist, two, loved art, three, collected it. And I do as well. So what was interesting, I imagine each of these songs for David Bowie and then later Pullman Bond deals were masterpieces, but similar to a painting in a museum, but the only difference was these had cash flows. And that was unique. And that's where in terms of art and commerce for meeting. And of course, there are later after these deals, there were other things you can do, licensing, like Angie Warhol, as an example, Picasso rights in terms of licensing rights that go with all different products that can be made and sold with the licensing authorized that create income streams. So there's a famous interview with Bowie where he talks about the future of streaming and what turned out to be sort of Spotify, Pandora, et cetera, and that that was the future of the internet. And did you get the sense when you put the deal together that he was looking at that and saying that the value of, say, the typical mechanicals, we talked about it before, the CD, the record, et cetera, was going to decrease because of, let's call it the commoditization of the songs itself or the way in which they were sort of digested by the listening public? Very astute. Yes, that's a very good explanation. It's an explanation that has never been explained before, what you just explained, because David was quoted as saying, which I always bring up, which I don't think everyone else forgot that he said it, music would flow like water and electricity. And that was true. And he said freely. And then that was pointing to demise. But people pay for electricity and water. Run your water in your house. You go to an office, you go to a hotel, and you go to a game and you drink water and you think it's free. But it's not free. Someone's paying for it. Most music in day to day, people think is free. You're sitting in a taxi cab, you're listening to music. Well, someone's paying for it. Radio stations play. You don't pay for it. But you pay for it if you have a satellite radio station. When you're listening to a television show, watching a television show, or cable, someone's paying for the music in those shows. Same thing for movies. When you're in a mall and you hear holiday songs coming up, someone's paying for those. So there is a payment for each of the listenings, no matter what the size is. And now they're getting better and better at not only just monetizing, it's not the cost, but also keeping the data based on that information. So David was right, though. It would transfer from to traditional sources, physical, vinyl, CDs, and then to CDs and DVDs, and then digital, to, I just could go back to it's the same things. When I was a kid in elementary school, they did a joke ad about buy every record ever recorded. For X, it was a joke in terms of, similar to the idea of buying a movie, a VHS originally, then DVDs and Blu-rays, and then people like, technology's changing, it did in music as well from 8-tracks to records, to cassettes, to CDs, to DVDs. But what later happens is, forget the obsolete part, forget that part. I have a whole wall of whatever it is that I just bought. And then, well, it's taking up a lot of space, technology changes, and I can't keep doing this. So that's when it makes a lot of sense. I thought at the very beginning it would go to the streaming, which I would say, because of the fact that people don't want to carry everything around with them. It takes up too much space. They want ownership, but they also want to have the freedom, and it's very inexpensive. So you can have, for a very small amount, a monthly fee, keep current on everything and have all the music. 
and that's where it went to. David, in a sense, at an intersection of really intelligent advisors and then his own sort of being able to peer into the future with where their income streams were going to be coming from, the future deals, the Dozier Hall and Dozier, the James Brown, et cetera, were they just a little bit late in terms of what happened vis-a-vis streaming? Did they pay off in the same way or were there other issues? Oh, sure. There? Okay. Yeah. I meant the stream part is for the currently is taking off. All the Pullman bonds, every single one, never missed a payment, never triggered, never defaulted, and all paid off in full and paid off early. I'd forgotten that. I'd heard that the later ones could get creaky because they were late enough that the Napster phenomenon and downloading for free and so on had crippled the DVD sales to the point where the industry hadn't caught up to replace those revenues to pay those bonds off. But that sounds like that's not the case. Well, not only is that not the case... Most people think, again, as the record business, music, as records, it's only a small portion, and it's a much smaller portion today. A big percentage of it is from sources like BMI, ASCAP, CSAC in the United States, PRS in the UK, that collect performance money. It's a big piece of the pie every time it's on the radio, every time it's on TV, satellite, in a mall, a royalty is generated. That's only increased over time. So that has not been affected at all by illegal file sharing. That was one area. Every time it's used in a movie or a TV show or an ad has not decreased. That's synchronization license. A big fee is paid for that. Then sheet folio music that's online available or hard copy, that's not affected by it. So the only thing that was affected was actually purchases, which is only a portion. Music is unique as an asset class in that what happens is if you rent in a particular city, wherever you're located around the world, or in the suburbs, wherever you're, you pay a certain amount per square foot for rent. Music, unlike Real estate has different levels. So you have one song and you can be renting within the same space, multiple levels, renting for using it in a TV show, for an advertisement, for it to be on radio, for it to be used on background on a website, for it to be a ringtone. Music continually has new sources. We did a deal for David. We had two new asset classes that came up. The song was covered by Jacob Dylan and the Wallflowers. Heroes was covered. That was a brand new asset class because it was a brand new asset because it didn't exist before in the income stream. There was no income stream in the past for Jacob Dylan's cover of Heroes. So we would get the publishing on that. Dr. Trey, done a form of music, a different genre of music. He used fame on his album Aftermath. So that was a new stream that didn't exist, but it went to pay down the bonds because it was the same song. All the money generated from fame, this is a new level. So that's it. So the people that came later actually... There were publishers share, writers share, record royalties that were involved in the deals, the future Pullman bonds. But the thing that they have in common, that they all paid off early, but what's unique is they were self-liquidating deals, meaning that at the very beginning, like a mortgage, each year they, the balance would go down. The reserves we set up initially in cash would go up as a percentage of the balance because the balance is going down, but the reserves are staying the same, growing with interest, cash reserve. So what is amazing to see now, which I predicted was that the assets are worth more than when we started. So when you see the valuations of offers for purchases or deals that are already closed for these large catalogs, like David Bowie, as an example, that's been in the news just in the last week, Paul Simon, as well as many other legendary catalogs, Bob Dylan, these catalogs are selling for hundreds of millions of dollars. Private equity firms and so on that are looking for pools of IP to generate these revenue streams, either to fund bonds or to otherwise just be able to pool the capital, 
How do you look at the valuations of that? Obviously, the market is bearing what they're bearing. Does it seem appropriate to you or is it something that has leapt ahead of where things are? Or is it something where you just have to have faith that the mechanisms to monetize this intellectual property will continue to unfold in different forms, much like no one really envisioned CDs back in the 70s or Napster in the late 90s, early 2000s on up to Spotify and now maybe NFTs in the future? David and I were ahead of our time in having done this deal, the first ever music entertainment intellectual property securitization. And what is really happening, what you're describing is that the asset class has become accepted. It was a brand new asset class. And Songwriters Hall of Fame week in New York. And I was at a cocktail reception. I brought someone I went to high school with and college with and went to law school after and I went to business school. And we were discussing it. And I thought what didn't make sense was my background was in mortgage-backed securities and trading. And but what happened is during the crisis in the 90s, the banking crisis, SNL crisis, and FTAC, what happened was about six players, half a dozen players, would buy all the assets they were selling off. And they couldn't buy them all because they were busy. So there were very high yields for these assets. And they were large deals. They were all the big players that were doing it at the time. GE Capital, Westinghouse, other players, Security Capital, they were all in this to buy these assets. And they got very good returns. The investment banks were doing it also. Goldman Sachs was doing it first. Boston was doing it at the time. So what would happen? Own, but they're only a limited amount of players. They all got very good deals because there are only a limited amount of players that had access to that capital. And we're going to take the risk to buy these assets from banks. They understood. They had the smart people in the room at their end to understand, in a sense, the credit risk or the actual underpinning cash flows and how stable they actually were. Correct. So I thought the same thing would apply here in music because of the fact that with the large yields that you'd be getting a higher yield. But when an asset class develops like it has in music, the difference is and when it becomes accepted, that's not the way it works. So when I said that to him, like, why do the larger deals have a lower yield? Buy a deal for $100 million, you can get a much lower return than if you buy $101 million deals, which we've done. We invest in buying catalogs as well. His answer was very simple. It was like, people always pay more for trophy assets. <laughs> so when you buy real estate, like, yeah, you could buy a, smaller buildings and take on more risks, more to manage maintenance. Or if you buy trophy properties in Manhattan or around the world, in London, Paris, the yield is much lower. And that was what you're seeing happening with these catalogs. It's also because, as I said, originally in these deals, when I first started doing them, was it's not correlated to the market. Your biggest risk is that the appetite for American nostalgia is going to go down. And if you bet against that, that to me is foolish. <laughs> well, yeah. And the other part is I always say doing these deals, it was easy for me to pick the right deals because I understood classics. That part I really get. Does it mean that I have the best musical ear at all? Whether it be art, music, books, I understood what classics were. So it doesn't matter if you like David Bowie's music or not. It doesn't matter if you like James Brown's music or not. But you have to accept the fact that it's classic, it's representative of a genre, it's iconic, it's a time capsule. And those types of assets continue to have a cash flow. Yeah, I was going to say, let's steer into sort of modern artists these days. And there's a lot of younger people who sort of look out there and see the Taylor Swifts and you know, some of the others who are sort of forging their careers. She's had her different machinations with her rights. I look at somebody like Prince's Estate, which I would say is a bulkhead of unbelievable IP that could be monetized later and maybe eligible for this type of securitization. How do you analyze the current artists that are out there 
and what's possible from a deal flow perspective? Well, the artists that you just mentioned, I mean, for Pullman Bonds, the ideal artists are ones that have big catalogs over long careers. There's not going to be as many of those. So they're redwood trees. James Brown, Icy Brothers, David Bowie, Ashton Simpson, Holland and Holland, they're unique. They're trees that, in terms of the grow and grow and grow in terms of the catalog. What you mentioned with Taylor Swift is an exception because she actually has a catalog. And it's over a number of years. And it will continue. Uh, many other artists are just going to have a single. 99% of artists will have a hit single and then six months later will fall off and you won't see it again. It's rare that you have I Feel Good by James Brown or Shout by the Ice Brothers. Ice Brothers makes more today than it did when it first came out as a hit. You want to look at career artists, and there's less of them that have a career, that have a body of music, and also it became more of a singles market because people aren't selling albums the way they did in the past. We look at that. I kind of look at the early 80s and the 90s and sort of that transition from vinyl to CDs to streaming. And I'm sort of trying to anticipate a little bit the concept of the NFTs, where there's sort of a scarcity component to recorded music, possibly. That could be something that becomes popular with a lot of different artists. We saw a little bit of that with Wu-Tang Clan putting out one album and creating sort of a multi-million dollar product around one particular sort of collectible piece of their music. And that concept seems to be taking a little bit more hold with the NFT level and the fascination of getting artists paid for different manifestations of their music. How do you think about NFTs as sort of the next stage of monetization for the artist? And where does that fit in in your worldview? First of all, years ago, I thought about investments and came to terms with myself that all investments we're looking at, debt, equity, independent of what the asset class is, it's an interest rate. In an environment with very low interest rates, historically low interest rates, you have younger people thinking and older people. You look to what the younger people are thinking and doing, so they think, what could I invest in? Because everything is at highs. Interest rates are at the low. So therefore, they're concerned about being in stock market at a high. They're concerned about getting low returns on bonds treasuries, no interest, virtually nil at a banking account. So that's the reason why the excitement surrounding cryptocurrencies. And that leads parties to be want to invest in other things related to it. And that's where the NFT comes in. And some of them will work and some won't. And was that professor from my school was speaking on this topic and I thought it was interesting because I asked him some of these questions speaking to me because it doesn't come up for what we're doing as much because you can't invest in them for royalties or as an investment purpose. But his view was, it's going to stay. It's not going away. Cryptocurrencies are not going away. The NFTs are not. So it's really just in terms of market absorbing, absorbing them. People will say, this time is different. And it's not. Again, though, the consistency is there were hundreds of automobile makers when cars came out. There's only very few that will continue to this day. So you'll see the same thing in cryptocurrencies and NFTs in terms of it's going to evolve. The way I look at it too is that the NFT is a, in a sense, a tool, not unlike a different type of contract, a different type of business arrangement between buyer and seller of whether it's music rights or a music file or something like that. And it's just in a sense, hardlined into the blockchain in some way, shape or form. 
as you say, things change and they stay the same. It seems like a lot of the things are going to stay the same in terms of analyzing rights divisibility. It's just going to possibly manifest itself differently in terms of how the contract is drawn up and how it's set down in the blockchain for a lot of these different types of rights. Does that make sense or is that like looking ahead differently? When you're starting to see these large numbers for these iconic catalogs, a Sting's catalog, David Bowie's catalog, Paul Simon's catalog, Bob Dylan's, as well as some women as well, Dolly Parton's catalog, Christy Hines' catalog. When you see that, these numbers for catalogs, Stevie Nicks' catalog, Fleetwood Mac's catalog, well, you start comparing to like, well, I see a lot of people that are famous or successful in TV and film. They're not making that kind of money because the rights, the copyright is held by the studio. They might get paid a lot per film or per episode, but these catalogs are developed because music is very diversified and the rights are diversified. So when you write a song, you own it until you sell it, the publisher share, or you record it for a record company and they have the record master or you negotiate that, put it out yourself and you own the record master. So that part is unique here in that music is very divisible. And now that you can see all these different streams from streaming, also the rights can be divisible and calculated by song, domestic rights versus foreign rights and different types of rights that can be sold off. But again, I want to be clear, you cannot do that for NFTs, the rights for the income stream, the royalties, that's not, it's an investment as an asset that can't be used for an NFT. I was brought in by a client to sort of think about an NFT purchase around a digital copy of a visual image. So not music, but we went into it and it's like, well, you've got a JPEG here that's housed in a fly-by-night company. And then you've got what I say, sort of like a note from mom on the blockchain saying you own number one of 15 of this visual manifestation. And I said, there's nothing here about your ownership of copyright on any of this stuff. And to me, that seems to be the underpinning of any sort of value with these types of things, no matter how scarce that digital representation is. And again, as you say, without that copyright ownership component, you don't really have a component of the future cash flow. And that to me is the cautionary tale for people who are investing in this is that make sure you know what you own and that what you own actually is going to generate a cash flow for you in the future. We learn as we go. And this time is different when things are happening. It's usually the same, but you learn from the past. So what's interesting to me is you're touching on something that like will be down the road. Down the road will be about this idea about copies. And you saw a piece it sold for tens of millions of dollars, over 50 million, under 100 million for digital art. And that's a big number for someone to pay for the digital art. That fits into the NFT model, something like that. So when I walked into the Prado Museum in Spain, Madrid, so the first thing I see is the Mona Lisa. So I thought, the Mona Lisa? The Mona Lisa is not supposed to be here. The Mona Lisa is supposed to be in the Louvre. And how do you know you're seeing the Mona Lisa when you're in the Louvre? You can see all these flashlights going off nonstop. And they say, you're not supposed to take a flash picture. And then the guard walks away and there's like 100 flashes go off. And there's huge crowds around it. The reason why I'm telling this story is because about copies and what you mentioned about copywriting and what does it mean. And at the time, the ultimate NFTs and work and being able to copy it and rights to or formats. An example would be there's two. One is the Mona Lisa by Da Vinci and the other is David's sculpture by Michelangelo, which is interesting to me is a story because of the fact that when you see them knock off sold all around the world and it looks terrible. Like when you see David's sculpture, it looks terrible. But in person, it's unbelievable. That's why they copied it. So going back to the Mona Lisa walking in, I looked at the date and it said about 1500 
And but okay, it's that good. The ten years later, other artists are copying it, and that's what they have here. The product. Well, at the time, the late fourteen hundreds, they didn't have copy machines. They didn't have cameras. So it turns out where I walked in and thought was a copy, and the Prada Museum thought was a copy, and the entire world thought was a copy, was Da Vinci's copy. He had created one for himself to keep one, and that's where you're going with the NFTs. Interesting. That would be the ultimate value. Oh, boy, that's a great example. I hadn't heard that story, and it resonates. Well, terrific. So as we wind down here, this has been a really interesting and fascinating discussion. It's fun to hear the person who helped to invent something that's so seismic in both the securitization and the IP world. Talk a little bit about it. What are your thoughts are on the future of securitizations generally or the disposition of IP? Is there something we should be looking at right now or a trend that hasn't manifested itself? You're going to see larger deals based on these larger purchases. And the deals that we did as Pullman Bonds were for artists and creators that never wanted to sell their works. They wanted to continue to own their work. So they basically, they would sell off the debt, which we would buy the rights to, and then sell off the bonds, and they would pay it off. So there's this balance between they wanted to raise as much as they could, but not so much that they wouldn't be able to make the payments or ever default or lose their rights. So now these deals are going to be much larger. They're going to be many more tranches, not just senior and sub, basically debt and equity in the Pullman bonds, where these deals will be maybe public deals, or private placements that are very large, that'll have all tranches and they'll have slices, be slicing and dicing these so that they'll be sold off. And then you'll see more of these bonds available because of the size of the deals to hit the bottom market. And there'll be a lot of interest in them. And we've seen over time how well they performed. We're also in a low interest rate environment. Remember, first deal for David Bowie, our interest rate on that was 7.9%. So when I would do interviews for it, which is interesting to me because David was so savvy. When we did the deal, we knew we hit something because before the deal was announced, the Wall Street Journal broke the story and bond market opens at nine o'clock. And before nine o'clock, when I came in, so eight to nine o'clock, the phones were ringing off the hooks by the bonds. So I knew we had strict gold with this. The idea that everyone wanted to know about them. The savvy investors, all the biggest investors around the world wanted to buy the bonds. Ones that knew nothing about it, that were doing other areas like municipal bonds that were not in fixed income traditional, they couldn't understand it. They thought they were kidding about this deal happening. So in terms of Wall Street Journal. So then if you fast forward to this, you will see that bonds not only paid off, but the asset, the underlying asset increased in value. So that's what is unique in terms of that there's tremendous demand built up for it, but there was not enough bonds to go around because parties wanted to invest in these bonds. You start mentioning interest rates like 7.9% these days, and the hunger for that would be, I would say, almost infinite from asset allocators. What happened was, we're doing a podcast, which didn't exist at the time. Right. did not. <laughs> so when we did these interviews, David Bowie gave me a couple of things. I thought when I did these interviews, the first thing was they'd be cameramen. So the cameraman would come. I have no idea why. I guess they're doing their thing and listening and watching. It was always the cameraman would say, so... They analyzed this in terms of in their minds, in terms of what this was, and they made an analogy to, oh, so it's kind of like, well, I get 7.9%, so it was attractive, the yield, and if it doesn't work out, I get the catalog. That was very simple. It's a no-brainer to them. Like, it makes a lot of sense. It's a great deal. It's win-win. That worked in terms of, like, the public got it. They understood that. They took that in. And what was great for me was when David passed away, I took off from work because 
I felt something happen, like it's kind of a repeat, and it was a repeat of when we did the deal for him. Like this launching, like a birth, and then in terms of its passing, because what people don't put in perspective was, here's someone who started as a teenager. Everyone's fantasy is about going out on top. David's second to last album on Billboard, I don't mean Billboard like a genre, like Billboard a particular one, whether it be country, dance, whatever the genre might be. I mean the overall Billboard chart for albums, like the top most important chart they have. And people chart multiple charts, but David was number two. His album was number two. His second to last album was number two. David's last album on his death, not after his death, his death was imminent, but the public did not know that because it was kept quiet, went out number one on Billboard. It's amazing. This is like the true genius of, from his early days as a teenager with success to his final album being number one on Billboard. Not number one, didn't go to number one because of his death. It was number one. That's incredible. And this idea of his work being in a museum, his songs being these masterpieces as you walk around and you see them and they have income streams was amazing. So, and he got that as an artist. And then later, you saw David later, it's his collection, who was on view in terms of his artwork and was at the most prestigious auction houses in terms of the assets that he created, in terms of art that he collected. That was something that was interesting. He was an artist, he still painted and listened to music while he was painting his music as well. So that is a part where he puts it into perspective. It's like, these are masterpieces. And I think what you're getting at with the interview is that they are masterpieces with cash flows. And that's why you're seeing private equity come into it and the securitization will continue of these asset classes and greater acceptance. And because interest rates are so low, they're attractive to invest in because they can afford to pay more. If interest rates were very high, you wouldn't see high multiples for these catalogs because they wouldn't afford to be able to pay them. This has been terrific. David, how do we keep in touch with you? In terms of the website, PullmanBonds.com. Email is on there, dpullman at PullmanBonds.com at any time always accessible and we love what you're doing and want to support you. This has been a real honor to interview you. I look forward to putting all that on the show notes so that people can keep in touch. David, thanks for being on. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.